Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. I'll tell you about it offline. All right. Cool. Bye. Bye. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined today by Ezra Klein for another debate wrap-up. Ezra is also uh, on today's episode of Today Explained, an excellent podcast that you could listen to today and every day. Uh, I, I think also doing uh, debate takes there, but we're going to be a little a little more weedsier yeah, here. Yeah, we're talking about Elizabeth Warren's front-runner status over there. Yeah, see, that's like that's like the politics headline news, you know. This is The Weeds. We're going to get into the the deep cuts. Yeah, we got one more quick um plug, though. So this weekend, um, I'm starting uh, for my sins a new podcast called Impeachment Explained, which is about digging into some of the deeper questions of impeachment, like what does high crimes and misdemeanors mean? And mm. like, what role does Fox News and conservative media play in changing this from how it was for Nixon? Or like, what can we learn from the Andrew Johnson impeachment? There's so much kind of torrent of news about impeachment, but there's a lot of these deeper issues that are going to shape it. So we're going to be digging into that every Saturday on uh, Impeachment Explained. We'll sort of do a news wrap up and then, you know, really get into the, the guts of it. And so I think we listeners will be into it. And you can subscribe now uh, wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. That sounds fantastic. Um, so, so last night, we heard a lot of kind of stuff that we'd heard in debates previously. But something new that happened was uh, Aaron Burnett uh, asked about automation. And she, I think, somewhat mischaracterized Bernie Sanders's jobs guarantee as a solution to automation. Uh, but that then got a bunch of different candidates to kind of weigh in uh, on the general subject. And, you know, most of them, I think, really heavily bought into the sort of key premise that automation is driving job losses. Andrew Yang used the kind of like techie guy catchphrase, the fourth industrial revolution. Uh, but then like all the way at the other end of the like conventional politician spectrum, Joe Biden also used that exact same catchphrase. Uh, and, you know, and that that goes to show that like there is a real huge victory for Eric Brynjolfsson and McAfee. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's like a big nexus, right, of like, you know, like big think people, TED Talk kind of guys, uh, technology industry people and like big time D.C. politicians who are thinking around this. Elizabeth Warren made a sort of 
hyper-specific dissent, which was she said that manufacturing job losses had more to do with trade than with automation, uh, where I think the AP fact-checker said she's wrong about that. Uh, I think that depending on what time frame you're looking at, she's right if you're talking about very, very recently, um, although wrong if you're talking about the, the longer spectrum. But, like, more broadly— I would just have, like, rejected the premise of this, that there's a big surge of automation. I want to separate out a couple threads of this. So one, I think we need to to talk about productivity, right? Because the, the place you would actually see this happening is, is productivity growth speeding up or accelerating in some fundamental way? Um, which is to say, is are we being able to make more stuff with fewer people in the economy um, at a higher, like a higher rate than we were before? And, and you've done a lot of work on that, and we'll talk about that. I had Andrew Yang on my podcast like a year, a year and a half ago. And we had a long argument on this. Um, and I really I like Andrew Yang. And I think he's actually been a great entrant in the Democratic primary. And I don't I don't think he actually is all that convincing on this point. But let's let's bracket productivity. Mm-hmm. But the other thing then is that there's this question of when you're talking about what automation is doing to jobs, because it's not doing nothing. Are you talking about net job losses? So what's happening to the economy overall? Mm-hmm. Are you talking about that there is some job loss that even if the economy overall is managing it, the people who are, are are getting hurt are not managing it? Are you making an argument about future job loss, which was happening last night on stage? Like we're going to come up with uh, self-driving trucks and what's going to happen to all the truckers? Are you talking about wages? Mm-hmm. And are you talking or and then there's this whole like other thing about dignity, right? Or are people feeling less dignity in their jobs and just and getting angry about that? And so. I also want to talk about the idea of is UBI, even if you buy all of it, is UBI a good solution to this problem? Right. But why don't we start with productivity? Because I think that this is pretty poorly understood and that, that you have a more uh, clear view of it. Yeah, I mean, this is just, look, you you look at statistics, productivity, it's like the dollar value of stuff produced uh, per hour worked. And it's been going up. It goes up almost every year, uh, which is a kind of nice coincidence about the world, right? We do make progress on becoming more economically productive. But we have been making progress at a slower rate over the past 10 years than we did previously. And not just the United States, right? But you see this in essentially all developed countries. There's been a big slowdown in productivity growth. And even the pre-recession productivity growth was slower than what we saw in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s. So, you know, if you judge by productivity terms, right, the true heyday of automation came in the years after World War II, uh, when we did not have what we would call robots or artificial intelligence, but we did have lots and lots of kinds of new machines uh, that were being rolled out at a very rapid pace, oftentimes because um, scientists had come up with stuff during the Great Depression, but they didn't use it because the economy was so fucked, Uh, or then scientists came up with stuff during World War II, but it was like only used to kill Germans, Uh, and then it sort of got unleashed on the United States and on Western Europe. We had very rapid productivity growth. And of course, people don't remember that as like a time when, oh, woe is me, like all these jobs were wiped out uh, by this new technology. What happened was is that average annual hours worked went down a lot. Uh, wages went up a lot. People started retiring when they got old. And, and it was nice. And we kind of just think of that as the good times. Uh, in the present day, we've had a sort of much rougher economic experience. And, you know, again, if you think about it, if you step back from this rhetoric about automation, you think about things normal people struggle with. Like, a robot won't build you a house. 
a robot's not going to uh, watch your kids. If you get sick, you can't go to a robot doctor, right? There have been these sort of marginal changes in how you schedule appointments. Uh, but in terms of, like, the core housing, transportation, and caring services that dominate household budgets, we've made actually really, really, really little progress. We've had totally dramatic technological transformations of uh, essentially entertainment, right, and media, like the industry you and I work in. Um, and that looms very large, I think, in media discussions of the world. Uh, but for, like, most people's lives, the, the problem is the opposite of, like, a relentless pace of change. It's that we're not getting any better at the stuff that that soaks up money and, and crushes people's living standards. And so to, to, to pull out, I think, a couple of the objections you'll hear in this, um, it is true that there are certain service sector roles that people really believe have been automated away. Um, the example that Barack Obama always used was ATM, was bank tellers mm-hmm. because we got ATMs. Right. But very famously, while it is true that we got ATMs and that like probably has automated away a lot of bank teller jobs. There are more bank tellers today than there were in the 70s. Yep. And that's probably because ATMs has made banking more efficient, which led to them like putting branches everywhere and just made the banking industry a lot bigger. Now, maybe compared to some other world, there would have been more bank tellers. But I don't think I think that it is hard to look back on that as some kind of hit to the economy. That's clearly not what happened. It's not even clear it's really hit bank tellers all that hard. So that's one one thing that I think is worth noting there. The other thing that comes up a lot in this space is something called mismeasurement theory. Mm-hmm. So there's an argument that we are mismeasuring productivity. We're not um, correctly uh, applying the gains of productivity because, you know, maybe the productivity gains we're seeing are not well-priced into the economy because everything is, you know, free, but you're doing advertising. Or you, you get different versions of this argument. And I, I've I've looked into this like, quite extensively and, like, wrote a long piece about it a, a couple years back. There's been a lot of economic research on this, and it just does not appear to be true. So it is true that we never measure productivity fully correctly. There is a huge amount of gains that are never priced into the new innovations, um, consumer surplus gains and, and other things. What you need to believe for that uh, argument to be true is that that is happening more now than it was before. So that there is more unpriced or unmeasured surplus from, say, like my smartphone, which I think kind of like on net makes my life somewhat worse, even though I can't imagine a way of living without it, than there were for antibiotics for toilets, for electricity, right. for roads, for cars, right? All these things also automated away other things. I mean, when we were able to power things electrically, a lot of folks who moved things from place to place under their own power, like lost that job. But as you said, we don't think about that period in American life as bad for the economy. Um, similarly, the like you can look at what has happened to agricultural labor. Uh, it used to be that a huge proportion, um, I think nor- at the very least north of 40 percent and possibly um, quite a bit higher than that, at the dawn of the country was employed on farms. Um, now, fewer than 2 percent were and we make a lot more food. But because that happened relatively slowly, we have more more than absorb that into the economy. And obviously, we all think that the American economy is better today than it was in, you know, the late 1700s. And so when you're even look, looking into that forward question of what's going to happen with self-driving cars and, and some of these other innovations that are on the horizon, the question is really how fast they happen. And I do not see any likelihood that we're going to have self-driving trucks that do not have a person in them soon. I feel like all of my reporting on this, just like people believe it might even be technologically possible. The idea that the regulations are going to permit it just seems very unlikely to me. So 
I don't think this story really holds up. There are a lot of problems in the economy, and I'm not saying automation isn't hurting people because it is hurting specific people, but it's very hard to tell any macro story that fits the data or our own past that is convincing here. Yeah, and that's where I I, I want to distinguish, as you said, right? So, like, individual people are always being harmed by different kinds of technological changes, right? That's something that has been true uh, for, like, a couple centuries now. And I think that's really important, right? I mean, if you want to think about what is a problem in American society. It's not a new problem, but a problem is that people, you know, they go to school, they get a job, they work for 5, 10, 15 years, they develop a lot of specialized skills, right? So by the time you're you know, in your late 30s, your mid 40s, you you have both an income and a status that is higher and different than what you had when you were 19, right? You are a professional, you have mastered a trade. And then sometimes technological change comes along and it just kicks the the feet out from under you, right? So if you think about not like, quote unquote, robots, right? But like there used to be people who ran uh, camera stores or you would develop film, right? And these were like, you know, jobs. They weren't like the most elite professions, but it was it was not unskilled work. This was stuff people had invested their time and their energy in. And then digital cameras come and then smartphones come and that all goes away, right? Uh, my mom was an analog page designer. She had like blocks of metal type and little knives and all kinds of rubber paste. And then Quark Express, Adobe PageMaker come along and, and that's gone, right? And so like in a humane society, you have both a welfare state that, you know, insulates people against these like ups and downs of bad luck. And I think you should also try to cultivate a culture that does not like excessively admire people who happen to have gotten into lucrative fields of work, right? There's like both a material and a spiritual element of acknowledging that like we are buffeted by these forces that are beyond our control, right? When Democrats were talking about this, they they weren't like talking about that, right? They weren't talking about like how do we use progressive politics to like be fair and decent in a world where change happens. It was instead like automation is this thing, right? This like discrete thing that is either happening now. Julian Castro said like, well, you see these automated checkout kiosks at CVS, uh, which you do, right? But you also see plenty of people with low-wage retail jobs, right? Like, that has not gone away. And it just seems much more pressing to me to address the, like, first-order questions of systematic economic risk or just people who do jobs that don't pay very well. Like, they work at the CVS, right? And they are glad to have that job. They would be upset if it all went away, was replaced by self-checkout. But so far, like, it hasn't been, right? And mostly what happens is people open more stores now that stores are less labor-intensive, which is fine. That's, like, the economy functioning. But, like, you know, people, like, they need better pay. They need more control over their schedules. It just struck me as, like, a very frustratingly science fiction-y conversation and, like, weirdly detached from everything else they'd been saying all night about how, like, healthcare matters or unions or or whatever else. Um, Because the reason all that stuff matters is that technology changes and we should want it to change more rapidly, right? Like, we should want to have progress and then we should want to have policies that, you know, facilitate progress and, and make it bearable. So uh, I want to make a slightly weird argument here. All right. I think that, one, everything you just said is true, and I agree with it. But I think that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren actually have a better response to the the automation challenges in some ways than uh, Andrew Yang actually does. And the reason I say that is that 
What has happened in a lot of the jobs we are talking about that are declining? So, for instance, Sears isn't around anymore, but Amazon is. And so fewer people work at Sears, which had like actually a pretty good uh, culture of how it treated its employees, but a lot more work at Amazon warehouses. Mm-hmm. And there's not been the time put in and like the organizing and the long effort to make the jobs in Amazon warehouses well-paid, good benefits. Like there's starting to be some of that. And actually Bernie Sanders has, has really pushed hard on that. But there is a thing where the, the jobs that are getting created are in many cases not as good as the jobs that are getting destroyed. And the way automation is structuring things and globalization, like there's a whole debate between Warren and, and, and Yang about whether it's trade or it's automation, which I, I think it could just be both. But it is leading to the people who own capital just making a lot more money. Um, and so like the, the distribution of gains is, is quite off. And, and again, I think like Sanders is very focused focused and, and worn to a lesser but still real extent, very focused on moving that distribution around. Andrew Yang's big idea is the freedom dividend, which is functionally uh, a universal basic income of about $1,000 a month. And I have become, over the past couple of years, much friendlier to UBI as something that maybe it's just the way we should structure a more decent society. Uh, it gives people more choice. I think it gives workers arguably somewhat more power. But uh, Dylan Matthews has written a great piece on on UBI a couple of years ago, and he makes a point, particularly around the automation conversation, that uh, UBI both does too much and too little here. Mm-hmm. Uh, UBI goes to it, it goes to a huge, I mean, the the vast majority of the uh, public whose jobs are not getting automated away. So you're spending all that money if you're trying to solve automation, giving money to people whose jobs are totally fine and are the same job they had last year and maybe the same they had five years ago. And on the other hand, if you really were a teamster who lost your truck driving job because of self-driving trucks and you're making $70,000 of benefits and now you get a $12,000 a year UBI and you don't have the dignity of that job and you don't have the money of that job. Well, you'd actually didn't solve that guy's problem at all. That guy is going to be furious and his life is going to be much worse. And so you've managed to have a very poorly targeted policy for for, for the automation problem. Whereas I think a lot of the the redistribution uh, arguments and worker power arguments like sectoral bargaining and co-determination and things like that, in terms of what automation is actually doing, which is concentrating a lot of the the gains at the top of the the income brackets and then um, taking away a lot of worker power. Like mm-hmm. that's a really good way to to try to attack those questions, no matter whether they're happening from automation, from trade, or just because of the way the the economy is changing and and, and norms within it are changing. It's weird because like the the UBI thing, it's so big, right? But there's actually like a very small problem in American life that that has turned a lot of politics around on this, which is that, you know, there's a sort of unresolved question in America, or we had one resolution to it in the 1990s, and it's are unmarried mothers who don't have jobs worthy of social assistance, right? Because if we give social assistance to unmarried mothers who don't have jobs, and you can call that a child allowance, you can call it a a UBI, you could call it a means-tested welfare program, right? There's a lot of different ways you could structure it, but that is a group of of people, right? Households that are headed by non-working, non-married mothers uh, has an extremely high poverty rate, right? Like, so child poverty in the United States is off the charts, and it's because we don't give financial support to households that have that structure. And the reason we don't do that is there's a moralized sense uh, and a racialized sense that these are bad people. That, you know, it's great to give help to seniors or to veterans or to the disabled, but that if you've got, you know, if you don't have a husband and you don't have a job, you shouldn't be having children, right? 
And like UBI is so much bigger than that. But if you look at like what good would UBI do? So much of the good it would accomplish is by lifting up that group of people who are really suffering economically by refusal to do it. And it's the same with, you know, Democrats have this less grandiose uh, American Family Act in the Senate, which is a child allowance. It's sort of UBI for kids or UBI for parents of kids. Uh, and it does an enormous amount. It would cut child poverty by 50 percent. But again, the main reason it does that is it would reverse the decision made in welfare reform and say we are going to give money to this very objectively needy group of people even though uh, they defy somebody's sense of like bourgeois morality. Like that's a really important question in American politics, right? Like our decision to not support unworking single mothers gives us uh, some real outliers in social problems and, and social statistics. And to discuss that issue sort of under the under the lens of what well, we're talking about automation or something, I think it's very misleading, right? Like, you know, th there's a lot of different ways you can kind of frame the question or structure the program or target the benefits. But the core question is, like, are we willing to say that this is part of our national community? And, like, I think we should, right? But, like, that's the dialogue to have. I think not, like, our robots taking over. But, like, do we care or are we going to go back to, you know, Ronald Reagan complaining about welfare queens? But this is actually the distinction that I've come to, to believe about UBI. I think almost every argument that frames and I've like been at the center of a lot of UBI argumentation. My, my wife, Annie Lowry, wrote a great book on UBI called Give People Money. Dylan, who I've worked with for like 15 years, has been like on UBI the whole time. I've like been around a lot of UBI people uh, through, through, through the two of them. And I think almost every argument which posits UBI as the answer to an acute problem, like the one you just laid out, mm -hmm. like we don't support um, single mothers is a bad argument. Mm -hmm. um, automation, there's always a more targeted way to solve the acute problem you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, the utopian arguments for UBI, that maybe the way we should structure society is to say that no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter like how you construct your life, you should have enough money to not be in poverty so you don't have to work. And we're not going to judge you for that, right? It is part of a cultural view that in a super advanced society in the year 2019 or 2025 or whenever we're talking about doing this, you can actually just stay home and enjoy your leisure and not have that much money, but you won't starve and you get health care and, you know, whatever else a basket is. I think that, like, might be right. I think that might be, like, a more radical but, but correct way to think about society. Um, and I don't just think that on, on single mothers, right? You know, UBI would also attach to just people who do care work but don't have have time or are doing a job, right? Uh, somebody who's left the labor force but is caring for elderly parents, right? That's valuable work and is like involved in their community. Maybe they should be compensated at least at some level. There's a good argument to be made that a UBI is a way of instantiating a different hierarchy of value and a different way of saying what does it mean to be born into a rich country than what we've said before. Like, I am pretty sympathetic to that. But yes, like, as soon as you get into, we have this one problem, like automation, um, and we're going to solve it through UBI, like, immediately you realize UBI is extremely poorly targeted and an unbelievably expensive and controversial way of solving a problem that could be solved much more directly uh, and affordably by other means. All right, let's let's take a break and then let's talk about the, the other end of the spectrum here and what's happening at the high end. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So it was not my expectation going into last night that a lot of the really interesting arguments would be an Elizabeth Warren, Andrew Yang matchup <laughs> like that, that. That wasn't on my like scorecard, but know. it actually was true. So we had the, 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 the UBI and like where are the job losses coming from. But there's another debate between the two of them in which Warren has been uh, arguing for a wealth tax, a 2% tax on wealth above, I believe it's $50 million. Mm-hmm. And Bernie Sanders has also brought out a wealth tax that is actually in some ways now more ambitious. But but Warren has really made this the core of her candidacy. Like two cents on the dollar. She like has this laundry list of things it can pay for. And like that just shows like what her values are about how to change the economy. Um, Yang made the point at the debate that this wouldn't work, uh, that other countries have had a wealth tax. They found it very, very hard to administer. And so they've mainly moved away from it and moved towards value added taxes, which is not exactly like how I would think about that transition, but he's not wrong that they've moved away from wealth taxes. And he's not wrong that a lot of economists believe a a wealth tax would be quite hard to administer. Like, how do you value a painting, for instance? It's like Mm -hmm. a good question in that. But you've done some work here. So I'm I'm, I'm curious how you rate the the wealth tax and implementation debate. I find some forms of this discussion to be a little bit in bad faith, right? Like, it is true that there is a specific challenge about how will you value wealthy people's art collections. But, like, it's also not true that art collections are a major component of people's financial wealth. When you think about implementation problems here that other countries have faced, the core implementation problem that historically bedeviled wealth taxes is 
tracking the ownership of financial assets, right? It's not that like um, German people had some super secret kind of wealth, right? It's that they would actually hide their wealth. You know, if you go all the way back, right, thousands of years, the, the, the history of taxation, if, if you read James Scott's book, uh, Against the Grain, he talks about what made wheat cultivation uh, so special. And what made it so special is that it was really feasible for a pre-technological society to tax. You could show up at people's wheat fields at harvest time, and either they were there standing by all their wheat, and you could demand they give you some of it, or they would run away to escape the tax collector, and then you could take their wheat. And other agricultural commodities weren't like that. They were much harder to tax, right? And so, but we evolved over time and developed systems to tax land, to tax real estate, because you can't, like, hide your house someplace. But it was very hard to tax financial assets, right? Stocks and bonds used to be, like, literal pieces of paper. You really could hide that from the government, and it was challenging to tax. I think in the modern world, we have developed the tools to track and tax uh, financial wealth in the United States. And if you watch the discourse around the Treasury Department is going to impose new sanctions on various Russian entities, how can they do that? And the reason they can sanction foreigners is that we can track modern banking transactions. Uh, Everything is electronic uh, thanks to anti-money laundering laws, thanks to the post-9-11 crackdown on terrorism. We have just much more insight into what is going on with people's wealth. Uh, The old Swiss banking regimes have been really sort of undermined, and we happen to tolerate corporate tax dodging in the Cayman Islands and the Bahamas and places like that. We allow people to establish sort of fake corporate headquarters. But if you think about international politics for like a minute, if the United States of America wanted the Cayman Islands to knock it off and like not allow thousands of companies to register like a fake shell address uh, in one office building, like we could make them stop. We aren't doing that because we don't want to. It's a policy choice. Uh, but so Switzerland has a wealth tax. It's small. It's, it's lower than Warren's wealth tax. Uh, but it works fine. They, you know, don't have any problem tracking people's financial wealth. And then what's true is that they have these marginal problems, right? Like what if somebody cashes in all their stocks and chooses to invest it all in second-tier Monet paintings? I don't know, you know, uh, but everything is like that, right? Like we have sales tax, uh, but it's hard to perfectly monitor taxes on cash transactions. A house painter, you know, told me he, he would knock a little off my bill if I paid him in cash. I didn't know if he was trying to cheat on taxes or trying to cheat on some immigration rules, but like it was something, right? And so that happens, but we don't say, oh, income tax doesn't work because some people hide their cash income. We don't say sales tax doesn't work because some people underreport. Wealth tax, like it should work fine. The question is really how do you value privately held companies like Coke Industries, right? That's that's sort of the one thing that's that's in the middle, where it's not most wealth, but it's, you know, more than zero. And, you know, that's hard, but it's not impossible. Like, privately held companies do deals with each other. Yeah, I, it's clearly not impossible. And one thing that I think often gets underplayed in this is that you could have a wealth tax with a reasonably high avoidance level and just raise a lot of money. 
right? It may be that you just accept that, um, and, and some economists did a study looking at exactly this question, that if you model this kind of tax and you assume a 15% successful avoidance rate, which would be quite high, you've raised billions and billions of millions of dollars for, for what you want to do. I'm not super concerned about one, like rich people moving away. That's just probably not going to happen. And if you are a rich person and you've decided to like leave the country because of the taxes, I don't know, like my kind of view is good riddance to you. And two, I'm not super concerned about like everybody stocking their money in paintings that are harder to value because again, like people want assets. And the thing about being rich at the kind of levels Elizabeth Warren is talking about here, $50 million in, in wealth, is you're really rich. Like, you are really rich. Like, you are rich enough. I mean, we are way beyond the, like, viral financial diary about how it's hard to be middle class in San Francisco on $350,000 a year. Like, you are rich in a way that there is almost no lifestyle you cannot afford without not noticing it. It may be that some people have such an ideological objection to the taxation is theft uh, of my wealth. And so, like, they they, they run around. But for most people, they're not going to notice. At these very high levels, a lot of the the money being made and kept is scorekeeping, right? It shows your value. You're in competition with other people. It's a positional ranking of where you stand in super elite society. But it's not like you can't eat if you're losing two cents on the dollar of your assets over $50 million. I don't know. Beto O'Rourke popped into the debate. And... uh, if I'm remembering the quote right, called it punitive. Yeah. And I just thought that was shocking, actually. Wealth inequality is like an incredibly real thing. And if you've managed to amass $50 million, you can give back more. Like, you can. Like, it's fine. That wealth is worth very little to you. I think you've made the point many times, Matt, that in some ways, like, the best argument for these much higher levels of taxation is the incredible declining marginal utility of the dollar people have. That at that point, that dollar just means nothing to you. And if everybody's getting it taxed away, then the positional question of it is reduced as well. This is a big argument Robert Frank, the economist at Cornell, makes. And so, like, we should do that. I'm not saying we should, like, tax all of it away and we can talk about Bernie Sanders' um, wealth plan, which at very high levels, like, goes up to an extremely high uh, marginal tax rate. But nevertheless, it's not punitive. It's about trying to, like, build a fairer society. And my God, if this society was so good to you that you paid $50 million in wealth, which was clearly not just you, like, that is a lot of other things happening and going right and a lot of luck um, aligning in the right way. Yeah, like, you, 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 you can pay some of that back. That's not punitive. I was pretty. I was pretty annoyed at that better well, comment. To defend Meadow, I don't know. It, I think if you try to say punitive, but like in a non-judgmental way, it, it's relevant to this, right? Because I, I do think one question. Stepping back to like Yang's point about the VAT, or like I, I, Larry Summers has been on this crusade specifically about the enforceability and the collection ratios, which I think is more his personal beef with Elizabeth Warren than anything else. But I will say that it depends a little bit, like, what are we trying to achieve here, right? If the feeling is the government needs a lot of revenue on an ongoing basis to fund a new program, right, I don't think the wealth tax is a super compelling way to do that. Uh, So, like, Warren will like to rattle off, like, this raises so much money that we can do, like, her childcare thing and, like, seven other things, right? But if you think about this in the long term, right, like how is American society going to work, the clear structure and, in fact, purpose of this wealth tax is to drain, like, the bank accounts of the hyper-wealthy, right? Because, like, two cents on the dollar, right, like, that's not so much. Uh, But over a 50-year time span, it's actually a lot, right? 
And because you know that the wealth is going to be taxed, it also encourages you at the margin to spend it faster, to give it away faster, and basically to, like, dissipate your fortune, right, on some mixture of paying the tax, doing charitable contributions, and just, like, spending money on on stuff, right? I don't think that's a crazy idea, right? But the, the concern is that you will have generational dynastic wealth, and the wealth tax is supposed to break that up. Incidentally, it raises a lot of revenue, but I almost think, like, conceptually, it would make more sense to take that revenue and just give it to people blindly, like per the UBI, because it's really just like a a party, right? Like we are saying uh, these tech gazillionaires uh, plus the Walmart heirs and a couple finance guys, like they just amass these unconscionable fortunes in a second gilded age. And now we're going to like ransack their storehouses, give the money away to everybody, and then reset with like a new fairer economy. Whereas, you know, if you look at a standard European welfare state, you know, Sweden, whatever, they have income taxes and they have value-added taxes. And they're just high because people keep having incomes and they keep buying stuff at the store year in and year out. And then those high taxes pay for social services. So like if you go shopping in Copenhagen, you'll find that everything is like terrifyingly expensive because of the the value added tax. Uh, But then if you like want to go to college or get your kid to a preschool, it's super duper cheap compared to America, medical care. So, you know, that's a different way of like restructuring how things work on a a day-to-day basis. So in that sense, like I do think it's, it's, punitive, as Beto said, right? Like, the idea is that the wealth itself is somehow bad, right? And that we need to we need to have a leveling impulse on society. And I sympathize with that, but I also sometimes don't... I don't know. You know, this is, like, one of these things where, like, I, I see the debate going, and I, I kind of feel differently on different days. Like, is it bad as such that, like, the hyper-wealthy have so much unrealized capital gains and we should do something about it? Or is the issue really that, like, we just, like, we need some programs and then we should fund them in whatever is the administratively simplest way? Recognizing that that we're in a bit of a semantic um, uh, argument here, I would say that the reason I don't like the term punitive is that I think it is taking something where we are like making an argument about how to structure society and mm-hmm. adding a very value-rich term to it. So we're going to go and talk about Warren and the Medicare taxes in a minute. But I think something that is very notable is that when Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or anybody talk about raising um, middle-class taxes to pay for something like Medicare for All, Warren doesn't quite admit that's what she's talking about, but is what she's talking about. Like nobody thinks that is punitive. They think it is like a like a structural position and that it would be a better that like from behind the veil of ignorance, like we believe mm-hmm. whoever is saying this, that it would be a, a better way to structure society. And similarly, there's a thing where a lot of these billionaires are signing the giving pledge or promising in some way or another to give away a vast amount of their wealth um, before they die, as opposed to passing it down to their children. Um, I think Warren Buffett has said he's going to give away almost everything. I think the, the Zuckerberg chance have said they're going to give away almost everything. Bill Gates is clearly giving away like most of his fortune, or at least like they, they're they planning to do this or say they're planning to do this. And I don't think that's them being like punitive to their children. I think it's like a view about like what is a good way to build society, including by the way, for their children, because I think often the children of super rich people don't turn out that well because, you know, they don't have um, like it's it's weird to just like never have to work for anything. So I don't know. I, I take your point. But I think that 
it is one of the ways discourse has been distorted that there's become this view that to structure society such that we don't have just endless accumulation of wealth or like endless run-ups in income, when you begin talking about those upper-level taxation questions, people see that as a real laying down your values on them um, mm-hmm. as opposed to you're trying to structure society. Um, and this is one of the questions you have to face. Now, by the way, it's not the case that um, nobody ever acts punitively in it. Warren was getting accused of this, but I actually think Warren talks about wealth a lot less punitively than Bernie Sanders, who clearly believes like the accumulation of these kinds of fortunes is immoral. And we'll kind of say that a little bit more forthrightly. But you can really separate that out. The question of whether or not you're doing this because like a robot, you just think this would be a better way to structure society or like a socialist, you think rich people are moral and like either should be taxed or should go under the guillotine. (laughs) Like those are like, you can choose that, but you can have the kind of value neutral version of this. And I think you see it when we talk about things like Medicare taxes. Yes. All right. Let's take a break. Talk about the Medicare tax. Journalists really want Elizabeth Warren to say that her vision of Medicare for all involves higher taxes on the middle class. And Elizabeth Warren clearly really doesn't want to say that, even though I think everybody on both sides of that question knows that it's true. And on some level, it's a little hard to say what the stakes are because she's not saying it isn't true. She's just wants to characterize it differently. And I don't really know what like what, what do you think this amounts to? So um, just the backdrop of this is that early on in the right after the impeachment section of the debate, uh, Elizabeth Warren got asked about this. She gave her sort of normal answer, which is that you should look at total cost, right? The connection of premiums and taxes and everything and the total cost for middle class families under her plan, which is at this point just Bernie Sanders plan um, will go down. Um, and then Pete Buttigieg, who was like having a much fierier night, like really went at her on this and they went back and forth for a while. And then Amy Klobuchar got involved and, and everything. I think there are a couple stakes to this debate that are interesting. So one stake is that I do not think it's a good look for politicians to be seen like hiding the ball in a way that is clear that that is what they are doing, because like people are going to estimate this plan. Um, they are going to like they've, they've done this already. I think the I think the accepted estimates are that the Bernie Sanders plan would mean about 30 some trillion in spending on the federal budget over a 10 year time frame, um, which is very, very, very large. As a comparison, Obamacare in its totality was about two trillion dollars in a 10 a, a year time. Frame. Now, that will mean um, that a lot of private sector costs are coming on to the public sector. And then there's a bunch of other questions about how do they do pricing and other things and, and how much is actually uh, uh, included in the benefit. Like right now, they would bring Medicare pricing over. Um, they would like the benefit would be everything, which we don't really know how that would change um, utilization. It could drive it way up. So it might actually not be cheaper overall. But you can imagine ways of doing it that it would be cheaper overall. But it's very hard to say who would be the winners and losers if you don't have the, the, the financing set up. So that's kind of the policy question that I think Warren is not is trying not to answer. And in particular, is like not dealing with the issue of how are people going to react when they don't really know how much their employer is paying for their care right now, but all of a sudden they have to pay a higher tax for the thing their employer had before. I think the one place that this actually does have a real stake in it, though, Bernie Sanders, who's very committed to this set of ideas, um, Medicare for all, and, and, and the sort of broader universe of redistributive ideas he's pushing, he clearly believes that if you you're going to get a European-style welfare state in America, you're going to have to convince Americans to pay for a European-style welfare state. And you're going to have to, like, neuter the attack or, or, or stop believing the attack that taxes can never be seen as, like, the price we pay for a good society. And Elizabeth Warren does not 
hold to that view. But in the kind of ongoing, like, Bernie supporter backlash against Warren, which I don't want to, like, overgeneralize it, but is certainly happening among, like, extremely online Bernie supporters, I think there's a sense, and I think it is a correct sense, that one of the differences here is that, like, Elizabeth Warren is probably not going to spend all of her capital on a Medicare for all fight. And that's part of why she is not setting up a more winnable argument for herself or, like, setting about this in the way that, like, protects her from later on, like, a CBO score. Whereas Bernie Sanders, like, really would, like, gamble everything on Medicare for all. And that is part of the reason, like, he is starting out by saying, like, yes, taxes are going to go up. You're going to hear that. I have told you that from the beginning. And so I think in that prioritization question, which is a very important important question. You are seeing a real difference between them that that is not fake, but is also, to be fair, not like explicitly being drawn out on that stage. The final thing I'll just say is that the other stake is that I think Klobuchar, Buttigieg, Biden, the rest of them think that this is a real weakness for a Democrat in a general election, and they want to prove that in the primary and convince people to move over to them for electability reasons because they're not promising these kinds of tax increases, but they can't quite convince Democrats of that, even though I think there's a a good chance it's true. There is clearly like an important Warren Sanders battle over this, even though they don't disagree, right? Where like essentially what's happened is that Bernie, by being in the race, is like pinning down Warren's left flank, right? So she can't just say what – people forget this, right? But Barack Obama, John Kerry, Al Gore, they all agreed in principle that a single-payer healthcare system would be a good idea. And then they said they didn't think it was politically tenable and they were going to work on some more short-term intermediate uh, options. If Bernie Sanders becomes president, it's still going to be the case that single-payer healthcare system is not politically tenable. Like just ask Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bennett, Kamala Harris, like all these senators he's running against, they're not for it. So what he's going to do is like have to do a legislative negotiating process and accomplish something more interim, right? So like on one level, nothing has changed. On another level, everything has changed, right? Thanks to Bernie Sanders. And so now Warren can't do that. She can't do the single payer makes a lot of sense, but here's my plan for prescription drugs. She has to keep saying, oh, she's going to fight for single payer. But she's also like a practically minded person. So she's terrified of these, these tax attacks. So she's like, up there bobbing and weaving. But I think she actually did a really good job of making this into a purely semantic argument about costs versus taxes. Because here's my question for her, um, if, if, if I could nail her down on this, is like, is it true that middle class families would see lower total costs? Because if that is true, you should be able to write down a plan with numbers in it specifying what the tax rates are. And then, you know, she knows lots of smart college professors, uh, so does Bernie Sanders, right? They should be able to show, look, families of this type will save this much money. And I'm not sure that it is true because one of the things they're doing, they're not just proposing that we swap out the existing insurance and have government-provided insurance, right? That would save money. Right. If instead of private insurance, we all had a government plan, I think there's a lot of ways that that could bring costs down. And then if you use progressive taxes, you could save most people money. But they are promising to replace our private insurance plans with plans that are much more robust, right, that have no deductibles, no copayments, things like that. That really drives the price tag up 
And it solves a big problem. Like one of the big selling points of Medicare for All, if you listen to either Sanders or Warren, is that right now they say that a lot of people are underinsured, right? That people who have insurance still face devastating financial impacts of illness or they don't go to see medical professionals because they are successfully deterred by deductibles and copayments. And they want to replace like the typical American's insurance with some much more robust insurance. Um, And so that is definitely good for you if you have a lot of medical costs, right? Like, that's what they talk about, that, like, there are all these stories of people who are sick and they need to see doctors and they're not getting enough care, and under Medicare for All, they would. Um, But there's also a large number of people who, like, don't have a lot of medical costs um, and who I think would probably be at least narrowly financially worse off under a system where everyone got a more generous insurance that they then don't actually take much advantage of. And, like, I could be wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm open to it, but, I, I, I mean, I sometimes uh, needle uh, Lori Kearns about this on, on Twitter. She's on, on Bernie's team. But it's like, if this plan is so good, like, I'm totally, I, I'm convinced by the broad numbers on national health expenditures and administrative costs that, like, you, quote, unquote, could write a plan that made the vast majority of people better off. But they don't seem to have actually done it. And I think the reason they haven't done it is the insistence on the zero copayments, which has not been the focal point of debate, but it it increases the bill for this like a lot and not always for reasons that are being articulated very clearly because they don't have like an alternate plan for rationing care. And it's like a little bit on one level, like, I don't care because this is all fantasy land and it's not going to become law. But I think if you were really to, like, get into the the weeds on Medicare for All, like, that's the question is why do we have this commitment to literally zero cost sharing, uh, which isn't how they do it in Europe. It is how they do it in Canada. But I think it causes a lot of problems in Canada, like, including the fact that they don't cover dental and they don't cover prescription drugs, like, which is crazy. If you cover anything, it should be prescription drugs. That, that I think, is the thing. Like, Warren does herself um, a favor if she can kick this into the terrain of pure semantics. And, like, it's just not obvious to me that it's true that typical families will see costs go down. Yeah, I mean, I think the the way you need to think about this, and one, by the way, we should know, like, there's typical families and then there's, like, your family. And even in 2016, when Bernie Sanders was running, something that came out, and they, they've tweaked the plans since then to try to deal with this a little bit better, but... It came out, and I think this was in uh, a, a analysis by Ken Thorpe, but the, it was going to hurt a lot of Medicaid users right now um, because of the way the plan was structured. They would actually turn out worse off. Like, most people would be better off, but some of the poorest of the poor were going to be worse off. And they, like, made some changes to that, and, and I'm not saying it's true now. I've not seen an update on that estimate. But the details of this really matter. The details of how you do the financing really matter because what was happening there was a lot of these Medicaid users were paying nothing. But if you assumed, you know, one of the kind of more broad-based taxes that Sanders has the Times talked about, they would be paying something. Um, so they would be actually worse off. Uh, another version here, what you're talking about, is if you have a plan that covers everything with no um, point of care financing whatsoever, no copays, no deductibles, no nothing, what does it do to utilization? I think in most models, it will drive utilization way up. Um, it's not going to drive it endlessly up because most people don't like going to the doctor, but it will drive it up. And it's intended to drive it up. I mean, I, I just think that's an important point. And I think like I've talked with Matt Brunig about it and others, and there's a like a like a hope. There's some 
there's some research out there that basically says, well, look, like when you add this kind of coverage expansion, what's going to happen is not just that the people drive more, but that hospitals and doctors and others, in order to triage their volume, they like they just like stop recommending so much unnecessary care, which is like a like basically like you're going to take care away from richer people, and hopefully that care is not that useful. Um, in order to spend more time caring for more people, that may be true to some degree. I doubt it's true to the entire degree of a of a coverage expansion this size. But basically, in terms of how you're going to pay for this, what CBO decides is true there is incredibly important. And then you have this other thing of what do they decide is true in terms of like the pricing power, adding Medicare pricing with like some rural exceptions, probably, and the um, administrative cost savings. And like all that is like really important. And the more detailed you get in the plan, like the more you're going to have to deal with it. But it'll really, really shape. Uh, you can have something where 54% of people are winners and 46% of people are losers. But 46% of people is actually a lot of people. Or even if it's 70-30, 30% of the country is a lot of people. And so like this stuff gets really hard. I will make the the, the one other point that there's a funny way in which Andrew Yang is arguing for a tax structure that is sort of more like what you would expect from the Warren and Bernie like social program visions. And like Warren and Bernie are arguing for a um, tax structure. It's a little bit more like what you would expect from like the Andrew Yang dystopic, like what's going to happen is that everything will move to automation and only the people who own the robots will have any money. So like taxing their wealth would become really important. There's like a funny uh, swapping of the plans that you could imagine happening here that would be quite, I think, a useful for everybody. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like a broad-based VAT, like Andrew Yang uh, describes, to finance a universal healthcare system, that's like a that's like a classic thing. Like lots of countries do that. Um, it seems to save money overall. It is more fair. It would not make a hundred percent of people better off, but it I think would be better for most people. It's just a little politically uh, unpalatable for various reasons because people don't like taxes. But then, yeah, as you say, right, like if you were re- Warren's plan, Bernie's plan, like like soak the rich with, with like super high taxes on the super wealthy seems like an answer to this other kind of cosmic crisis. I just I never know what the Medicare for all debate is like about at, at this point in time, right? Because so much of it seems to me to actually not be a debate about organizing American healthcare, but just a debate about Bernie Sanders, you know? So, like, people who five years ago were, like, happy to say that, in principle, a single-payer healthcare system was a good idea, but, like, who don't like Bernie Sanders are, like, now mad that he's campaigning on it. And people who really like Bernie Sanders, like, want to talk all the time about Medicare for All and what a great idea it is in principle and show very little interest in, like, working through the specific problems in the way that you would think you would want to. And that's not to, you know, cascade like every single person involved in this. Like if you talk to like the uh, Physicians for National Healthcare Plan, right, those guys have been pushing for single-payer healthcare forever since as long as I've been in the industry. And they have these like incredibly detailed blueprints for how everything works. And that's because like they are really in it because they like they they really strongly believe in this idea of like big bang transformation of the American healthcare sector. So they are ready to give you chapter and verse on how all these things work. They will tell you that like yes, we're biting some bullets on this or that or the other thing, but like it's worth it, it's important. But like this dialogue that's happening in the primary, we're on to like the fifth year of Bernie running for president, <laughs> right? And I think like the points he makes about this are all correct. And then also most of the questions critics raise 
are also correct, and he's not like answering those questions. And why and why should he answer them? Because it's not a real legislative debate. I think it is a real debate, but I think you're right to say it's not the debate they're pretending to have. Mm-hmm. I think this is a debate. Um, and I've like now spent a lot of time debating people in it, and it took me some time to see what we were actually arguing about. It is a debate about politics and how it works and like what makes things pass and what keeps them from passing and what makes people win elections and what keeps them from winning elections. And I would say that at a very core level, the argument that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are making is actually not a policy argument, but an electability argument. And the counter argument is actually not a policy argument, but an electability argument. And the the electability argument they are making is that what, what will make you electable is a set of inspiring, unbelievably ambitious visions where you can really tell people what they are going to win out of it, like what they're going to get, like how like politics will make their life dramatically better all at once, and that that will mobilize your base. And the key thing to winning an election in the late in the the late twenty tens is mobilizing that base. Um, and a lot of people with a, I, you can say maybe a more traditional view of politics. You could say a experience of politics. It is not in like the two bluest states in America. Their view is that yes, you need to tell people what you're going to do for them, but you also need to be sensitive to their concerns about what you will do to them. And to have something hanging out there like tens of trillions of dollars in tax increases or I'm going to take away the health insurance you like and rely on for some government plan um, that like you don't really maybe trust and like you don't maybe trust me is going to be electoral poison. And so they're having this argument about Medicare. But I think the reason they're not having the argument like we are talking about, like, well, what should we have copays or not? Like, that's an interesting question. Let's debate it. Um, on a policy level is that the reason it focuses on abolishing private health insurance and taxation, in addition to that being like what moderators who want to see a fight ask about, is that that's actually the way they're getting at this political electability argument of like, does what you're promising outweigh the attacks it opens you up to? Or do the attacks you are opening up to outweigh what you're promising? And because like the, the proximate goal is to win the election, the fact that like none of this will pass is actually not all that relevant, um, at least not yet. Because like once somebody wins an election, then you can try to figure out how to pass the maximum amount that you can possibly pass. But before then, the question is like, how do you win an election? And like there's a strong view that compromising down beforehand is like not the way to do it. And then like a similarly strong view that freaking people out is not the way you do it. And like it's just very different implicit views of the American electorate. But so I think this is not going to be me diagnosing what other people are talking about. But but to me, what has like gone, what I would like to see done differently in the future from how politics was done in the past is not what you do during the election or even what you do during the legislating phase. It's what do you do after that? Right. Because what happened with Obama and the ACA is that like Obama started out saying like, yeah, you know, like in some level, like single payer, that's fine. But we need to be more realistic. I have this plan. He puts out this proposal. Uh, It has a public option in it. The public option is watered down and then it's stripped out. Some other elements of it uh, get changed and, and to an extent weakened as it goes through the congressional ringer. Then the Supreme Court knocks out like a really big piece of it. With Medicaid expansion, also, like, the experts start saying, like, almost right away that the mandate as written is not strong enough to achieve its real goal. And then HHS starts writing the regulations around the mandate deliberately to be kind of weak, to minimize political backlash. And, like, that's all fine, right? But what happens the day after that is not that Barack Obama says— 
all the things he said during the campaign about like how tragic it is that people go uninsured in America, about how we need to take on the special interests, about how we need to provide people with an adequate standard of care. Instead, what happens is you go into this kind of like spin mode where it's like this outcome of the legislative process that did not get the things they were asking for. Like, it's all great. Like, it's fantastic. We're moving on. We're done with healthcare. And I and I, I was there. So, like, I, I, I know why that's what they did. And then you have, like, some of the people who were involved in writing the bill, like, go off and work as industry lobbyists and stuff like that. And that's the kind of thing that I think causes people to lose faith, right? And to like the idea of a crusading politician who, you know, like, Bernie Sanders has voted for a million, like, incrementalist healthcare bills over the course of his career, right? But I think, like, what's cool about him is that he always keeps saying that he thinks it's morally outrageous to live in a society where there are people who, for financial reasons, can't get the medical care that they need, right? And, like, the fundamental promise that that is interesting to me in this is to, like, not, not give up, right? Not to, like— just go native and be like, hey, I'm amazing. I did these achievements. But to like keep saying that the structure of society is unjust until it has become just. Um, And that is not like, it's not like a policy question. In a lot of ways, I think these sort of like clever Buttigieg, Beto kind of like halfway uh, Medicare things, like they make a lot more sense policy-wise and politically. But I but I, I like, I respect and I feel the yearning for someone who's not going to let like legislative reality than like set their own moral horizons, but who's going to keep saying like what they believe in. Yeah, I think that is completely what this is about on some level. I think it's probably a good place to to end though too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, what we are all about here on the weeds is uh, policy, politics, all that kind of stuff. Uh, send us an email, uh, weeds uh, at, at vox.com. Uh, if you've got any thoughts, uh, suggestions for, you know, other aspects of the debate you, you might like us to, to weigh in on. Uh, thanks so much, Ezra, for joining us from the West Coast. And check out uh, Today Explained, um, which is doing a lot of awesome stuff uh, lately, but we have, a, we have a fascinating conversation about Elizabeth Warren today. There you go. Um, so, you know, I want to thank, as always, our sponsors. I want to thank Deb Edidel for engineering this episode and our editor, Jackson Bierfeld. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. 